Welcome, folks, to episode 28 of the Motown Philly Podcast. This is the Philly of Motown Philly Podcast. Your co-host, Tim Golden, and I'm here with you this week to share our Black History Spotlight. This Black History Spotlight is taken from two places. It's taken from the website of the National Park Service, and it's also taken from a book titled Maria W. Stewart, America's First Black Woman Political Writer, and the book is by Marilyn Richardson. This week's Black History Month Spotlight is none other than Maria W. Stewart. In September of 1832, in Boston, Massachusetts, Maria W. Stewart, a black woman, did what no American-born woman, black or white, before her is recorded as having done. She mounted a lecture platform and raised a political argument before a promiscuous audience, that is, one composed of both men and women. On that particular occasion, Stewart spoke out against the colonization movement, a controversial scheme to expatriate certain black Americans to West Africa. Why sit ye here and die? She demanded in the characteristically challenging style familiar to those in the audience who had read her work in the abolitionist journal, The Liberator. If we say we will go to a foreign land, the famine and the pestilence are there, and there we shall die. If we sit here, we shall die. Hers was a call to action, urging blacks to demand their human rights from their white oppressors. At the same time, she encouraged them to plan wisely for their future in this country, to see the establishment of strong, self-sufficient educational and economic institutions within their own community. Stewart, the first American woman to lecture in public on political themes and leave extant copies of her texts, was a woman of profound religious faith, a pioneer black abolitionist, and a defiant champion of women's rights, women's rights. Her message was unsparing and uncontroversial, intended as a goad to her people to organize against the tyranny of slavery in the South and to resist and defy the restrictions of bigotry in the North. Born free in Hartford, Connecticut in 1803, Maria Miller was orphaned by the age of five. She was bound out as an indentured servant to a minister until around the age of 15. At some point, she moved to Boston and supported herself as a domestic servant. She sought as much education as she could get, mostly through Sunday school classes in reading and religion. In 1826, she married James W. Stewart, a shipping agent and veteran of the War of 1812. As Stewart aged, she had a deepening religious faith, and the racism and segregation she experienced in Boston 
pressed her to speak her mind publicly. In 1831, she delivered a manuscript to the offices of white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison's new newspaper, The Liberator. That summer, she published her essay, Religion and the Pure Principles of Morality, the sure foundation on which we must build. The success of the piece led to a short but significant public speaking career for Stewart. She gave four recorded public lectures between 1831 and 1833. Stewart used biblical language and imagery to condemn slavery and white racism. She argued that it was God's will for black people to struggle against oppression using force if necessary. She exhorted black audiences, especially black women, to pursue education and to demand political rights, but not to forget who oppressed them. Sue for your rights and privileges, she wrote in 1831. Know the reason that you cannot attain them. She reminded white readers that our souls are fired with the same love of liberty and independence with which your souls are fired. We are not afraid of them that kill the body and after that can do no more. In 1834, Maria Stewart left Boston and moved to New York, where she joined a black female literary society and began teaching. She spent her later years in Baltimore and then in Washington, D.C. In Washington, she was appointed matron of the Freedmen's Hospital. In 1878, a new law made Stewart eligible to collect a pension from her husband's military service in the War of 1812. She used the money to publish a new edition of her speeches and writings. Maria Stewart died in the Freedmen's Hospital on December 17th, 1879. Maria W. Stewart, a life, a black life, well lived. Hello, Motown Philly family. You all need to know that this podcast is sponsored by The Speaker's Mechanic. The Speaker's Mechanic is a business enterprise of my co-host Jason Hall, who is a communication skills coach, and he's also published author of a book called A Vocal Owner's Manual. He works with professionals who are looking to improve their communication skills, and I guarantee you that if you work with him, he will improve yours. Check out his book on Amazon. Again, it's called A Vocal Owner's Manual, and you will be certain once you check him out to improve and get better because here at Motown Philly, that's what we're all about. And that's what his brand, The Speaker's Mechanic, is all about. Thanks so much for tuning in and thanks to The Speaker's Mechanic for this sponsorship. It is your boy, Tim Golden, here with my co-host and homie, Jason Hall. What's up? And Jason is from Detroit, the city known as Motown. Y'all can't see him, but he's rocking that Detroit Tigers cap with yeah, the yeah. on it. Yeah. And I am yours truly, Tim Golden from the city of brotherly love, also known as Philly. 
In the words of my quarterback, Jalen Hurts, it's a Philly thing. And we here with episode 28 of the Motown Philly podcast. Just want to take just a brief moment here at the beginning to offer our gratitude to those of you who have been listening and tuning in. We're at episode 28 and going strong. Our aim here is to keep delivering you the content that you need to build better communication, stronger connection, and deeper community. And so we want to thank you for that. And today, Jason and I are going to be talking about, excuse me, we are going to be talking about the Super Bowl and communication. Just three days ago, our nation engaged in a national ritual centered around controlled violence, violence with rules, violence that is that is engaged in by large and athletic, strong, fast men who play a game within the confines of a stadium. And we celebrate the clash of the Titans with some indulgences, food and drink and fellowship with friends and family and we're going to get into the cultural phenomenon of the super bowl we're going to get into some of the shortcomings of the national football league and last but not least we're going to get into the triumph of the african-american quarterback so that's what you're in for today well jason listen man the super bowl is tough for me to talk about it today because I'm sorry. I just, let me just first offer my Go ahead. my loving condolences man i mean yes man you're my guy and often people have said to me throughout the past week who are you rooting for and who's your team jason um and of course my detroit lions didn't play in the super bowl so I, typically i'm relegated to not necessarily having a dog in the hunt However, my brother and co-host, dear friend, Tim is, as you guys well know, he is from Philly. He is Philly. So Fly Eagles Fly was my response to individuals who did not, who did, who wanted to know who was I actually rooting for um, in this particular Super Bowl clash. And so my heart was with Philly and my head was too. Um, so when they lost, I, I was I was feeling some of the pain, not all of it. Let me just be honest, not all of it, but some of the pain that Tim, you know, that you were going through. So I just want to publicly offer uh, my con- my condolences and I'm sorry that they didn't quite get, at, get, get through to the finish line um, unscathed with a victory. Well, Jason, your empathy is remarkable and you are an extraordinary human being. I appreciate you assuming the burden of cheering for my Eagles with me on Sunday. So it was a it was a hard fought game. I said to myself leading up to the game that the only way the Eagles would lose is if they beat themselves. And in a sense, that's what happened. There were too many mistakes in the second half, but I don't want to get into X and O's. What I want to talk about, Jason, is the Super Bowl as a transcendent event in American culture. True, true, true. It is is one of those events that, and we're just three days 
or so out from the game. So mm -hmm. those of you who are listening to this, when you get your upload notification, it's going to be a week after the game. But this conversation is happening actually just a few days after the game. And so we we thought it was appropriate to talk about this because the Super Bowl has been around for 57 years. And in wow. the 57 years, it has evolved from a sort of almost side event, almost like a sideshow to the main attraction. And I'm curious, Jason, you know, you and I have done episodes about food. We've done episodes about yes, about gifts. We've done episodes about fellowship with others and communing with others. And what do you what is it about the Super Bowl hmm. that makes it part of all of these other human activities, eating, conversation? What, what do you think it is, Jason, that makes the Super Bowl the transcendent phenomenon that it is? And by transcendent, what I mean is, it, you know, people everywhere get together, like all over the place. It isn't right. just about people who never watch football at all. Like you and I know, we fo you follow the Lions, I follow the Eagles. We're always watching football every Sunday. Right. But even people who don't watch it uh, have a interest in getting together and watching it. So what do you think it is, Jason, about the, the phenomenon of the Super Bowl? It's funny because that's a question I was asking myself and was if you weren't going to say something, I was going to ask you that similar or same question because it is something about the Super Bowl and the events surrounding it that is magnetic on proportion in proportions that we see in no other sporting event or any other event of entertainment let's just be honest like this is the super the super bowl to me and i think it's perceived to most um people in the united states is the super bowl sunday specifically is is similar to a, a holiday it is a it is a a holiday event where like you said man woman boy and girl old and young um no matter what ethnic seemingly no matter what ethnic what ethnicity that you are you we all pause in some form and you know fix our eyes to the screen and watch these whatever two teams come together and it's an event it's an event it's an occasion it's something you do it is part of our american culture to take in this game and just like you said in true fashion you have individuals on many levels that are engaged into watching this particular this this particular event and it is the most and best marketed event too because many people no, don't come just to watch the game these individuals want to watch commercials um they want to watch the halftime show the pre-game the post game the interviews the pageantry before and afterwards so this event has everything 
one would want in entertainment. It has song, it has dance, it has uh, the 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 um, the mystery, if you will, of of who's going to win and who are you going for. It it just has everything entertainment would all would offer, and you put that on steroids with marketing, it's it becomes it has become otherworldly to uh to to in some ways just behold this event so to answer your question i think it's just the biggest american sports or north american sports setting for entertainment and it has every it has storyline you know it has everything that you want in it um that's my best response to that it yeah. in entertainment it has everything yeah it has so so you're you're saying that it is what it is because it has all of the elements mm-hmm. of a social and cultural celebration. Mm-hmm. It has it has narratives, mm-hmm. stories of the players, mm-hmm. the stories of the coaches, mm-hmm. the stories of the fans who travel mm-hmm. from across the country to mm-hmm. go to the game. What was it like on the plane? Right break out in a chant when you mm-hmm. land it right mm-hmm. it has so it has narratives is a central part of it don't forget the military like the the it's, right, it's right. woven the, the, the flyover right uh-huh. there's, a, there's a flyover i want to talk about that in a second right so there's a military flyover and there is a an appeal to food right oh, yeah food. the 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 consumption that's why the TV commercials are so compelling, and that's why they cost so much money to advertise, right? For a 30-second uh, spot, I, I don't know what the exact cost is, but I'm sure it's pretty expensive, right? And only the the companies that have the most to spend are going to be the ones to be able to afford it because that's prime time, right? If, if you can... If you can market your product in that during those three and a half hours, then you're going to very likely uh, get some customers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the idea. So it has it has a profit motive. It has narrative. It's connected to food and it's connected to an overall sense of togetherness. Right. People mm-hmm. just come together they come together to watch the super bowl it's a it is a real cultural ritual and an event i, I want to talk about wanna, go before ahead, you talk. go there i want to i want to piggyback off of that to what we normally spotlight for as to why we even have this podcast the communication is is about what the super bowl is is the marketing aspect um and it seems like what it communicates is the narrative of the individuals which creates that connection and then on sundays we all in community so to speak have this sense of togetherness that all the narratives draw us together and it's the perfect it is the perfect storm for communication connection and community that's the super bowl in its essence bro that, yeah, that's right, Jason. <laughs> wow, that's well put. So here, here's the Motown Philly motto being applied 
to one of the biggest cultural events, wow. if not the biggest cultural uh, events event of our time. Right, mm-hmm. that Super Bowl is about communication. It's about connection. And it's about community because people come together and they have Super Bowl parties and they invite people over and then there's the food and then there's something about someone telling their story, but people sitting there on the couch that may not have seen each other in a few months, an aunt and an uncle, and they get to sit there together. And maybe one of them doesn't regularly watch football, but one does. And the people who don't watch it maybe are intrigued by the fact that these people who they see playing on the screen are not just robots, that they're Mm -hmm. human beings, that they Mm -hmm. come from communities themselves, right? Mm -hmm. That they themselves have benefited from communication and connection and community, Mm -hmm. right? So we heard so many stories about the quarterbacks who we'll talk about in more detail a little later, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts and the the communities they came from. They talked about their fathers and Jalen Hurts often talks about his mother and his grandmother. But if you're somebody who doesn't watch sports or if you're somebody who thinks pro football is dumb and it's just something your husband or friend does, it's barbaric, you get together. And now all of a sudden the Super Bowl comes and you get to see that, wait a minute, these people aren't barbarians. Right, mm-hmm. this isn't a barbaric uh, exercise. They're or, humans. Uh, they're they're people. They're people. They're people who happen to live in a world in which they can benefit from having an extraordinary degree of athletic skill that has landed them onto a platform that enables them to play a sport in a way that very few people in the world can do. The only other people who can do it as good as them are the guys on the other team, right? And so there you have it. But let's let's talk about something for a minute, Jason, because two things about the Super Bowl I think are interesting. And I think they have historically been and can continue to be objects of social and cultural cri- criticism but maybe maybe we can we can begin to think them otherwise so i'm thinking of the military flyover right Mm -hmm. which is something that i used to see i was watching a game one time and they did the flyover and just before they did it the public address announcer said this is the spirit of america Mm-hmm. And they flew over. And I thought to myself, is this the spirit of America? <laughs> Military? You, and your, you and your analytical mind. I thought as a militaristic endeavor. Yeah, that is the spirit of America. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world where we tend to, we have tended to show or tended to view, I should say. Go there. Go there. Endeavors as things that are inherently violent because they are inherently masculine. Mm. But I have recently seen a flyover. I think it may have been for the Super Bowl or one of the championship games a couple weeks ago in which all of the pilots were females. Mm. They were all women. Now you could say that, oh, well now the women are just caught up in this masculine endeavor, but let's just not cheapen their experience. Mm-hmm. There are lots of women who 
want to go into the military right and who go into the military and who thrive uh, yeah. and they, they become a really big part they have become a really big part of people who serve our country mm -hmm. right I'm having having high level jobs and positions exactly high level jobs high level positions i was i was stuck in an airport recently that's a story for another time <laughs> and i was i was stuck overnight in an airport and i was waiting at the gate and i had the most wonderful conversation with this woman who was in the military she was wearing her military uh fatigues she was visibly pregnant and we sat there and laughed and joked all night and she was telling me about her military service and was talking to me about her husband and how she can't wait for his tour to be finished because then they can be together and the military is going to give them leave for the baby so the military is a very different thing today than it was 40 years ago or 50 mm -hmm. years ago right mm -hmm. and so i think one of the things that's important to me when i think of the super bowl and the pageantry associated with it is that our social and cultural understandings of military for instance may need to be rethought a little bit in light of the changes in the military there are plenty of lgbtq people in the military right? Right, right so the military has has sort of evolved and it has me wondering if our understanding of the military as an american institution uh would evolve with it what do you, what do you think about that jason i mean i think it's good to become aware of what you said initially to the inherent whether conscious or unconscious knowledge to know that military has historically been um been associated with americans and being um a patriot as 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 a show of power and um like unity and you know being american like that that show of it's almost a flexing, if you will, of military might shows us. It reminds, supposed to remind us, like that's who we are to our core. And what you brought up is that's not, you know, we have to hold that in its proper, uh, proper weight or just proper context to be like that is part of who we are but there are so many other aspects of being an american that should also be heavily considered in all times especially in very high branded high profile events that it's not all of who we are it is a it is a part of who we are and whether one person or family is militarily inclined and have individuals in their family or loved ones that are in the military i think it's it needs to be it needs to just be held in its proper context because it's not all of who we are i believe just understanding that our culture has evolved including the military i don't know if you recall but i was it was probably on one of the the military navy ships there was just like a posture if you will or a flag of, of that was seemingly multicolored as far as people uh uniformed out 
that kind of resembled like you know a rainbow if you will that showed some type of military solidarity with individuals um of the gay and lesbian community uh and i thought that was definitely something that was unique and different and progressive if you will that showed a a type of unity that the military hasn't really done in my estimation in, in my in my memory so that was cool i think it was really really i don't know what you were feeling but i think it was really really poignant when and it, something that really hit me when what's the name of the uh the artist who played the national anthem uh i don't want to mess it up but it's stapleton what is his name um chris, was it chris stapleton yeah he he's an artist he's he sings tennessee whiskey i should know that forgive me you guys out there listening but he kills that song right and so i'm familiar with that song and or his music on some level but i know he kills that song he's a great artist um i've been getting feedback about that song as one you know there's many songs like you said over 55 years 57 years that the anthem has been has been sung and you know we can truly remember i.e whitney houston when when an artist just absolutely transcended when they when they sang or uh, gave their rendition or uh, of the star spangled banner and watching the tears of the coach of the philadelphia eagles uh like fall down his face as the song was being um presented and just kind of me kind of listening to how well he was doing with with playing his rendition of that song was was absolute playing and singing the rendition of that song was a was a sight to see as and to behold as he you know gave his his take on that particular um piece that is often sang um, before the super bowl i thought it was a pretty amazing moment yeah it was an amazing moment it was it was amazing because what you've just articulated is yet another element of celebration that is essential for something of this magnitude which is an appeal to music mm-hmm. and an appeal to the national narrative mm-hmm. an appeal to the national narrative that at least in the moment has a way of transcending racial differences etc and bringing people together the disappointment of that is that it whatever benefit we gain from being brought together is ephemeral it's transitory because the game ends right mm-hmm. and when the game is over everybody goes back to everyday life and there there's this sort of rhythm where we events like this may be good because they happen once a year we come together and then we go back and then we come together and we go back and it's just a rhythm and the problem is that we could never seem we can come together but we can never seem to stay together <laughs> and, and so that's interesting but i want to i want to talk a little bit jason about another aspect of the super bowl that i guess nowadays in these days of of gender uh, sensitivity and people don't like to talk about things like this but it's maybe it's the elephant in the room 
the fact of the matter is that the Super Bowl, the game itself, is a man's game. Mm-hmm. It is a game played by men. It is a game played by men who have a superior level of physical conditioning accompanied by a level of mental discipline and rigor that requires them to analyze a ton of information very quickly. You listen to the quarterback call a play in a huddle. You you see that you hear that it's a different language. And these are men, grown men, big men, strong mm-hmm. men, many of them black men right. play in this game. And what's interesting is that when you study the nature of the game as a masculine game that is played within boundaries that is itself a violent game you get penalized if you hit a player when the player is out of bounds right so this is a social and cultural celebration of a level of violence that is subdued somewhat by rules of a game that make it a controlled rage participated in by men who are physically, athletically superior to most people in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Except the other people who on the other team. And what's interesting is that there are players themselves who surround themselves with women and there was a woman coach in this game her first name was autumn i can't remember her last name but she was on the eagles kudos to my squad (laughs) for having the first woman i think she was the first woman uh certainly the first black woman to ever coach in a super bowl She's one of the one of the assistant coaches on the Eagles Mm -hmm. and Jalen Hurts, his his whole media team, his management team. They're all women, many of them black women. Wow. And so I, I, you know, I've always thought, Jason, that football is a microcosm of every man's dream. What man doesn't want to be in shape like a pro football player? I mean, I looked at, I looked at AJ Brown without his shirt on, and I said to myself, "Could I put my head on his body just for twenty-four hours <laughs> to see what that feels like?" Every man uh, wants to be in shape. Every man wants to be able to run and jump and display physical feats of strength, and then come off the field onto the sidelines only to be greeted by a beautiful smiling young woman with pom-poms who's cheering them on and telling them what a great day it is what what a great job they've done i think that is in a sense every man's fantasy and i will say this i think that's part of the reason why a lot of men like to watch football because you get you get in there and you get to be it's a contest it's a contest of will it's a contest of strength and size and speed and then you come off the field 
and you got women cheering for you and stuff like that. I know there's been a lot of cultural critiques and feminist criticisms, but at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is the Super Bowl is a ritual of masculinity played in a violent way within rules. There's the American narrative there, the rule of law. You have to abide by the rules, but it's right there. We celebrate it. We like it and we really enjoy it. And I think that says something about how we view men in American life. What do you think, Jay? I mean, as you describe that, I'm thinking more so of the old gladiator type yes, yes. Uh, arena. And I'm seeing a lion and I'm seeing this crowd and I'm seeing this this warrior in the ring or uh, and he is being cheered on and celebrated. And when he, you know, slays the other gladiator or the beast, if you will, it's just like there is flowers and you see the, the pageantry and it's just like the eloquence of this whole. I love the words that you the phraseology that you're using controlled violence. Um, that, that's it's it's a beautiful term to describe exactly what it is like it, it is that football is America's most violent sport, not to be confused with WWE. Uh, fans uh wrestling fans or whatever but it's just like what happens in football not say that you can't get hurt within that sport but definitely football is america's most violent sport and as you guys can recall um um like us owning only a few weeks ago having essentially a player die on the field and be resuscitated um because of a blow or hit that he took well, we don't, um, we don't, we still don't know that, Jason. We um, still don't know if it was because of the blow that he took. There has been a lot of silence on Demar on what caused Demar Hamlin's cardiac arrest. Oh, we wow. still don't know. We don't know if it was the hit, but we don't know if he has some sort of cardiac condition, some sort of congenital. Mm -hmm. Congenital. So we we don't know what it is yet. But what we do know is that the NFL came up out of that thing smelling like roses <laughs> because the Bills trainers resuscitated him and he was at the Super Bowl watching the game with everybody else. Definitely. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, no. It's, yeah. it's part of the narrative, though. It's part of the, the you know, play this game at your own risk as your family sits on hoping and crossing fingers as they root you on, but at the same time have their you know, have their fist clench and teeth uh, fully fully clenched as well on every hit and every play and every action, hoping and praying that their loved ones come home safely. Okay. So it, it does mirror that gladiator uh, mentality of masculinity of saying, you know, we're in the arena, cheer us on, hopefully we make it out of this alive. And if and when we do, like, celebrate me uh and and i'm going to take it all in because i earned this particular you know this particular feat or or championship so it, it it has that bro yeah i love that i love that point you just made because it brings to mind the risk 
reward analysis, mm. we have decided the Damar Hamlin incident notwithstanding. And again, we don't know what it is that caused his his uh, his cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe someone out there has heard something. I certainly have not seen anything definitive, but just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean there hasn't been anything definitive. So let me qualify it. As far as I know, we don't know what caused Damar Hamlin's cardiac arrest. Maybe it's the case that it was the hit. I, I, I'm still not sure. Uh, I, I don't know, but maybe there has been a report. And if someone else has seen that report, by all means, you need to come share it in the Motown Philly podcast Facebook group. So that's just another reason for you to come in. So again, I'll qualify it and I'll say I have, as far as I know, I haven't heard anything yet. Maybe others have. If you have, please share that with us in the Motown Philly podcast Facebook group. But you know, Jason, another thing then, and I want to use this point to to segue us into another part of the, the conversation here. One of the things that we have done is we have realized or we have given what you said we have said to ourselves that the risk is worth the reward Mm -hmm. that the reward of this is that something that we haven't talked about yet Mm. is billions billions with a b of dollars good transition chick (laughs) billions of dollars many of which make their pockets into the it make their way i should say not pockets many of which many of these billions of dollars make their way into the pockets and bank accounts of these players which i don't think anybody has a problem with right i think Mm -hmm. these players the fact that these players get paid as well as they do I don't think that's a problem for most people. Mm -hmm. And we've decided that whatever risk to them is outweighed by the rewards that they get. They get a certain level of cultural and social recognition. They, They get a level of celebrity even. They get access to the best medical treatment in the world. They get Patrick Mahomes he signed a contract a couple of years ago worth almost 500 million dollars no no 503 million i looked it up on 503 that day. <laughs> so 503 million and and he gets a, he gets a if patrick mahomes retired today i think he would be a first ballot hall of fame player right just because Ridiculous. of his resume his achievements and the way he rises to the the moment in big games but all of this we look at all of this and we say, you know, there's a chance they could get hurt. And the fact of the matter is the NFL has been around for a long time and there's only been one DeMar Hamlin incident, mm-hmm. right? In all these years. So it, the risk is definitely worth the reward, but let's talk about what happens to these players after they're finished, Jason, because when they finish, many of them have real problems that are connected to the physical demands on their bodies. And one of those problems historically has been the phenomenon known as CTE, which is uh, chronic, I think chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a condition of the brain that 
is a deterioration of certain cognitive centers in the brain and it just in it just impedes it just changes your life you basically can deteriorate mm-hmm. and and die and it's kind of like a, a slower version maybe of mad cow disease uh from from a long time ago there was a phenomenon about that but anyhow without getting into the physiology of it too much some years ago there was uh, well, there was, I should say, until 2021. Now, the NFL has been around since, I think, the 1940s. <laughs> and since in, in 2021, it was discovered that there was a problem with money that was set aside. So the NFL has a pot of money set aside for players who experience cognitive decline after they retire from playing professional football. And part of this cognitive decline involves the player uh, having to show that their cognitive level was once up here before they played, and now after they played, it's decreased to a much lower level and so they're eligible for financial compensation right mm-hmm. it was discovered maybe i don't know five or six years ago that black players retired black nfl players were filing claims to the con- to the uh, nfl's fund and their claims were routinely being denied and the claims of retired white players were routinely being granted. And so there was a lawsuit filed. Mercy. Lawyers are really good for something, folks out there who are listening. Mm. And as a result of the lawsuit, it was discovered that the National Football League was engaged in a practice of race norming. Well, what does that mean? Here's what race norming is. The NFL made certain assumptions about black players. And one of those assumptions was that black players had a much lower cognitive baseline than white players. In other words, the NFL for years had been assuming that white players were smarter than black players. So if you picture in your mind's eye a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper, you put a um, a letter B at the bottom of the page and a letter W at the top of the page, it's much easier to show that you have a cognitive decline if your baseline is higher. But if you're already at the bottom of the page where the B is, and you're trying to show a cognitive decline to get your money, it's much harder to show a cognitive decline because it's already assumed that you're closer to the bottom. So if we think of racism as 
an institutional feature that, that wrongly makes decisions solely based on someone's race. This is it. This is institutional racism. Now, I've always thought, Jason, that the call to boycott the NFL in light of the Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem, I always thought that was misguided. Why? Well, and why? I, I thought it was misguided because I don't think that the, I don't think that the playing of the national anthem itself or Colin Kaepernick's protest uh, said anything about the NFL itself that was racist. I think that said more about the racism of our culture, the backlash that Colin Kaepernick received, I think said more about, uh, about that kind of racism uh, than it did about the racism of the NFL despite the fact that he was arguably blackballed because of it. Mm -hmm. This, on the other hand, I think if I had known about this, this is the type of thing that would have made me stop watching the NFL. Mm -hmm. And that's saying a lot coming to a kid, coming from a kid from Philly who grew up and bleeding Eagles green, still bleed Eagles green. We lost the Super Bowl. I'm still going to cheer for my Eagles, no -hmm. matter what. Okay. Someone who played, someone who played, actually played. Uh, I, I, I played football. State champion. Yeah, won the city, won the city championship mm -hmm. in 1983. Played football, did all that, man. Love it. But if I if I had known this, this would have made me find something else to do on Sunday. This is pretty bad, Jason. We're going to assume that black people are not as smart as white people. And because you have a lower cognitive baseline, it's going to be that much harder for you to prove a cognitive decline. But if we already assume you at the top, all you got to show is a decline. You're going to get paid. That is institutional racism. Now, as soon as this got exposed, the NFL smart smart as a whip knew they had to protect their brand they automatically ended the process of race norming they ended it in the summer of 2021 that was just that was just less than two years ago okay wow so this is a this is a dark stain on the nfl jason what what are your thoughts on this i mean as you talk about institutional racism how much separate is it from systematic cultural racism that we have in our in in our country i think they they are interwoven and connected we have a corporation which is the nfl who who is created and established in our country and in the culture of um, america which was uh, established on very mm, on very unstable social economic premises if you will and you so you have this mega uh institution or corporation 
that has grown over time, but was established, like you said, in the 40s and 50s and grew under. So it's like an umbrella under an umbrella. And its institutional methods are not necessarily far from the cultural systematic methods that we find in the body at large of our country. And that particular practice that is institutionalized, that was institutionalized by the NFL only mirrored what we actually see uh, on a day to day, you know, in day to day, on a day to day basis in our culture, in our country. So the two are not in my head separate as far as the practices, whether inherent, I don't think they were necessarily unconscious. Maybe they could be an argument to, to that they were, but, you know, maybe very similar to, to, you know, a black man being um, humbled to death in the streets of Memphis by other black men when people can say, well, you know, racism by police are is is not just a, a, a white black issue. Even black people are doing it that you can argue two sides. You definitely don't have to be to be bl uh, black or white to carry out uh, systematic racism. The point is that in the institution of the NFL, that's a that became something that was glaring uh, as far as a behavior that would kind of marginalize you know men who look like you and me to have rights to something just by their merit of playing and being a part of the same association as their counterparts who were white that they were unable to benefit from and it's just like hello where where does that happen oh wait you know that happens all around us in our country and it's it's sad but it makes me in a lot of ways think about the other inequities that are inherent in the in the sport of the uh, of the NFL that might be gray, that might be inherent, that might not be overt, but covert. But at the same time, tradition has allowed even us being black, us being OK with talking about the bodies, the black bodies of 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 a sport that is predominantly black of the NFL. I mean, we we talk about players. I heard just today um, on ESPN radio, the general manager talking about uh, Lamar Jackson as a high value item or high value asset. And whether it's the NFL or the NBA, players who are actually human beings being talked about as pieces as if they were on market or trade, AKA trade and market back in slavery days, as you know, I just, there's something about that language that even black people use, black announcers, black commentators and analysts, they they talk about market value. They talk of, of, a, of human beings, you know what I'm saying? Like, as if they yeah. were commodity, it's part of the lexicon, talk about communication, um, uh, or, or vocabulary of of this culture, and like I said, black announcers, black former black players, they talk about themselves or others as if they were items, 
as if they were commodities and not to go all all pro-black and and, and all pro-black in in black history month but i guess i shall like in some ways even though black people now benefit or the players benefit and their families benefit from being uh participants in this violent control violent sport yeah they're getting paid but those who own that particular sport are are owners of different teams how much more exponentially are they getting paid so off off the backs and the bodies of these black individuals not assets in my estimation and it's just it and at the end of the day they're not even getting recognized by their own union their own association their own league their own institution like hey we value you enough to of course give you the the care the need the 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 health care if you will that you deserve because you play party to helping make us a multi billion dollar industry bro well i hear you i would push back a little bit on that because they do get paid a lot of money and you you reference slavery slaves didn't get paid anything these why people, can't, yeah you're right so but why can't slaves, it be an uh, amalgamation of such things without the well, coercion because because it because it's not it's just it's not the same thing you're talking about black athletes whose legacy is trans whose generational legacy is forever changed right you talk about patrick mahomes he will never anyone in his lineage in his family tree will never want for money ever mm -hmm. ever again he will never have to be a sharecropper mm -hmm. he will never live in poverty and ignominy he will forever be known barring some dumb action on his part he will forever be known as a social and cultural hero right uh so i get it the owners make a lot more than the players because they can afford to pay the players a lot of money so relatively speaking yeah the players don't make that much as the owners but in the end, the players do get paid extremely well. They do have access to top-notch medical care. And so to speak of them in terms of assets or commodities is no different from what we do in the everyday average world of the corporate Joe when we talk about human resources human beings should never be transformed into a resource right but yet that's what they become we become resources we become means to the end of the corporation which exists for one reason and one reason only to make money period i just, so, I just think yeah, there's I argument mean, there that i think i i'm i'm not asserting yeah. that my my thought and theory is and was right i do no, think no. that you know there is a lot more risk to the player i don't care how much they make because there's value on human life that far out see at far succeeds patrick mahomes you know 10 year 500k 
$500 million contract, even as great as that is, um, I think if he had $10 million for the rest of his life, if he invested it well, his family, a lot of his family, if not most of his family could do well and grow from that. But my, like I said, we can, I think we can go back and forth with sure, that. Just sure, think sure. that there is argument for that because there's definitely more inherent risk, hello, to, um, to, to the player than it is for the owner in I, every way. I, I think so. And, and it's like that in, in just about every professional sport, I think. So, yeah, so we have we have the Super Bowl as a cultural phenomenon, a social phenomenon. We have this dark stain of racism. But then we have this story of triumph, Jason, because if you think back to 1978, the 1978 NFL draft, if I'm if my memory serves me correctly, I think it does. There was a young quarterback from Los Angeles, California, and he had just won the Rose Bowl for the University of Washington in Seattle. At the time, it was the Pac-10. Now it's the Pac-12. If he was white, he would have been a first-round draft pick. May have been a top-five pick. But because he was black, he was not drafted at all his name is warren moon mm. and warren moon today is in nfl hall of fame rightfully so he had to because he was not drafted in 1978 he had to go to the canadian football league where he went and he played there and i believe they won five gray cups which is the equivalent of the lombardi trophy in the National Football League. So he went there, played for five years, won five championships, and then came to the National Football League and played out his career with the Houston Oilers, who are now the Tennessee Titans. And the there were no there was no Houston Texans back in the day. And now we have uh, he finished playing with the the Houston Oilers and the Minnesota Vikings is where I think he finished his career. And now he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it has been understood when you talk to some of those general managers who passed on Warren Moon that a black quarterback could not play that position. That he just wasn't capable enough. Remember now, we just got finished talking about race, Norman. And what was the assumption about black players? That they're not as smart as white players. Not as intelligent. Not as intelligent. They can't process information, especially at the quarterback position. Mm -hmm. And Warren Moon was a quarterback. And so, in a sense, to go from that to Doug Williams, who played in the NFL and won a Super Bowl with the... At the time, the Washington Redskins, now the Washington Commanders, he won a Super Bowl with them. Then you had uh, you had Steve McNair, who played in the Super Bowl and lost to the St. Louis Rams at the time. Mm -hmm. Then you had uh, you had Donovan McNabb played with mm -hmm. the Philadelphia Eagles. 
lost in 2005 to the Patriots. Then you had Russell Wilson, who eventually played in two, won one of them with the Seattle Seahawks. Mm-hmm. You had Cam Newton, who played in one and lost to the Denver Broncos. And after Cam Newton, you've had Patrick Mahomes, who has played in three of them and won two of them. And you had Jalen Hurts, who was playing in his first one. And sadly, for Philadelphia faithful, he's 0-1 in right. Super Bowls. So it's it's really amazing to see the journey, Jason. It's It's encouraging. Although, as discouraged as we are that the NFL just ended race norming less than two years ago, and arguably they didn't end it because it was wrong. They were convinced it was wrong. They ended it because they got caught. Right. Right? There's a big difference. It's encouraging, on the other hand, to see that black players can play the quarterback position And what I like about the stories of Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes is that the two of them talked of their fathers. And this was a celebration for me of black masculinity. And it was a celebration of black masculinity because it's nice to see black men in leadership positions or as quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks, as franchise quarterbacks, talking about how it was their relationships with their fathers, their black fathers that made them who they are. I'm encouraged by that. I thought that was phenomenal. No, me too. Uh, I don't have, I don't feel like I have a, a ton, a ton to say about it besides what I think is obvious to me. It's just like, we're definitely have moved past an era thinking about the eighties and the nineties where it seemed like the black man was being removed from the family due to social, cultural um, structures that were in place to remove them, that particular um, figure. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we've advanced in our time and the the black male is more present in the home, more so than they were in times past. And we're now seeing a generation of of the, of the sport athlete, the athlete, or uh, who's in sports who have very present fathers because that type of structure, a uh, social economical structure, you know, has been has been attacked and has been removed and has been dismantled in certain in certain aspects, and and. You have individuals such as John Morant. Like we don't, I don't know what if John Morant's mom came up and came up and like smacked me in the face or gave me money. I wouldn't know who she was, but I, you know, but if John Morant's dad, you know, came up to me, I, I would know and no doubt know who he who he um, was and. You know, he kind of looks like Usher too. So there's been made a lot of reference to that. But <laughs> I just think the presence now of the athlete's father uh, being a pivotal role in the the maturation, the upbringing, and maturity of 
the the athlete these days is i think it's a beautiful it's a beautiful narrative a beautiful story and it's something that you know i hope continues to to grow uh, in our in our in our country's eye yeah it's nice to see that you had eight quarterbacks to play in the super bowl and eight black quarterbacks to play in the super bowl and i guess doug williams russell wilson and now patrick mahomes have actually won it in in a sense last week's game was a win-win because no matter which team won there would have been a black quarterback that won the super bowl but it is it is nice to see that things have moved along in this way and and i just hope that they continue to get better my biggest takeaway from from this year's super bowl and and it should be a takeaway from every super bowl is that none of the players on the field get there by themselves many of those players have been supported by single mothers many of those players have have been supported by women their entire lives many of them have been supported by men their entire lives many of them have been supported by extended communities their entire lives some players may not have had the best home life but they had a coach who cared Mm -hmm. they had a teacher at school who cared and if if the super bowl tells us anything i think the narratives that it tells us should let us know that no one achieves that level of excellence of their own solely of their own ability you just Mm -hmm. don't you need people to help you Mm -hmm. independence is a myth we are all dependent on one another for different things at different points in our lives now we don't always have to wear a diaper and have our clothes changed and, and have our diapers changed and we don't have to have someone watch over us but as we get older our dependence changes form right when we're no longer in infants we have a different type of dependence if you have an education you're dependent on the teachers and the professors if you have a certain skill that you want to develop for me i like to talk about acting if you want to do that you have to depend on other people people to coach you people to help you people to show you the way so I think as we wrap up this discussion, Jason, of the Super Bowl, we can say that it is, and you put it so nicely at the beginning, it is a celebration of communication, connection, and community. The community that we build by watching the game, the community that the players build by playing on teams, the communities that they've all come from, from single mothers, from single fathers, from poor families, from well-to-do families, some from no, some from compromised families who've had coaches and 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 maybe pastors or other folks in the community taking interest in them. We all get where we are through communication, connection, community, and that's why y'all need to keep tuning in to the Motown Philly podcast. Listen. I got some news for y'all. 
our downloads dropped a little bit last week. Our average downloads, they dipped below 100. We got to get them up, folks. We got to keep downloading. Jay, you got to we got to get them in True. the Family Podcast Facebook group. What yeah. up? No. Listen, you guys, from what we said, we need you guys to chat back at us. Whatever we've said that you like, you liked what you didn't like that you have something to say about to add to the conversation. Yo, we want to hear you. We want to create the community that we all need to have open dialogue, uh, great community, great, healthy, effective communication so that we can create these connections so that we too can, can build, can build out a community of not just listeners, but interactors as well. So we love you guys. We absolutely do love you all. Thank you so much for tuning in. This episode 28, that means we about to be 30 in a couple of weeks. 30, yes. 30 episodes and count. And you know, once we get to 100, Jay, next stop is 1K. Woo! Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We on the way, y'all. We're on the way. Jay, where can they find you, man? Guys, you can look me up on Instagram. You can find me at the speakers mechanic. Look me up on Instagram at the speakers mechanic. If you're looking me up professionally for coaching, for communication skills, speak for speaking and voice work, please look me up on Instagram uh, uh, at the speakers mechanic and on LinkedIn at Jason Hall, uh, communication skills coach. Chick, Tim, where can we find you at, bro? Y'all can find me on Instagram at a good golden man. You can find me on Twitter at DRTJ Golden ESQ. And you can find me on Facebook at Tim Golden. Three things in life are certain death, taxes, and I'm the only black man in Walla Walla, Washington named Tim Golden. Walla Walla, the city so nice. That is twice. Twice. Oh man, that's my that's where I live, but that ain't where I'm from. Y'all need to know that. I ain't grow up out here in the boondocks. I'm from Philly, baby. Let's go get it. So Motown Philly, y'all, listen, we love y'all. We appreciate y'all. Keep listening, keep downloading, keep sharing, subscribe. Listen, we got so much more good stuff in store for y'all. Just stay tuned because we're going to keep delivering the content. That's what we about here at Motown Philly. You know what I'm saying, Jay? Delivering the goods. That's what we do. Hey, we're going to keep delivering the content. And we want you all to keep delivering your beautiful listening ears to us. We thank you for making us part of your lives. Keep listening. Subscribe, share, download. Come in the Motown Philly Podcast Facebook group. Share your thoughts. And until next week, when we return, y'all take good care of yourselves and each other. Later, guys. We out. Love y'all.